0: We're reading Matthew 28, 5 through 20. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and Keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All right. Thanks, man. How's everybody doing? Still with me? I'll move fast. Don't worry.
1: I'm sure there's some sports game you're running to get to or brunch. All right. um, Here's what we're doing today. Um, I'm not big on apologetics. Um, It may appear I'm doing a little of that this morning, though. Oh well. Um, so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, about resurrection, um, and we're going to um, uh, talk about doubt. We're going to talk about there's some interesting passage, interesting parts of this of this uh, passage, especially especially verse 17 right here um, that Matthew just kind of sticks in there to let you know. And they all came and worshipped him, and some doubted. Um, so. We're going to talk about that. Why is that in here? What is this about? What does it mean? Why did he struck? Why doesn't he say who? Why does he structure it the way that he does? Um, so let me pray, and then we're going to jump into this and get going. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask that right now you would be present with us, that we would uh, gain wisdom and understanding. Thank you uh, for this man, Matthew. Thank you for the, the community that he led. I, I pray that um, the things that he taught them, the things that he wanted them to see would be the things that... Uh, that stand out to us that we uh that would make a difference in our lives this very day as well. Um, I pray that as we as we read this ancient text that we would have first century eyes, but we would look at the similarities between the time in which they were living and the time in which we are now living. And and I pray that um their answers to the world would be the same answers that we have. And um I pray that uh today would be um eye-opening, um, that it would be um, that it would give joy and peace and rest, thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. Hey Jason. is he back there? Milliken? We just blew a fuse right here. Welcome to Watermark. We blow fuses. Stuff breaks. We just blew a fuse. and so if anyone back there knows what a fuse box is back here, and you want to flip that, anyone at all knows where that fuse box is, go for it. otherwise i 'm over here today. There we go. You know where it is? You know where it is. You installed it. I mean, it's not your fault, though. <laughs> I didn't mean like that. I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying thank you. All right. Whoops. You know, I'm just... Never mind. I won't say anymore. Okay, here we go. Um, the angel said to the women, don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this passage here for a second. I'm going to talk about resurrection for a second here, because, oh, yeah. Way to go, Robbie. Now, Okay, now, a lot of people, even in our community, um, struggle with the idea of a resurrection. Um, a lot of people hear this, and you're modern, educated people, and you think, well, people, people obviously don't rise from the dead. So, this must mean something else, right? And I know a lot of people who do their best to make it palatable for, for people today um, Hey, Jason, I would recommend turning off light number two so that doesn't happen again. If you go off too much, just perfect. All right. Um, well, That was me, wasn't it? I'm not, I was, okay, whatever. You guys, it's the last day of Matthew. It's casual. Relax. <laughs> it's like the last day of school. Like, we're not doing anything. Um, <laughs> And so people talk about resurrection in several different ways. I have, I have friends and even pastors uh, who are friends who talk about resurrection in, in several different ways. And I run into this a lot even in our community. I want to point these things out and sort of talk about it. And the first way that people tend to talk about resurrection is that like it's like it's when they talk about resurrection, they mean the global impact that Jesus is having. Like this message is going to keep going and it's going to keep circulating and bring life to, to the world and to people. But that's their way of saying, like, I don't really believe it actually happened, though. Um, and the second thing I see is people talking about sort of the spiritual resurrection. Like, it's the church that, that the apostles are talking about. They're talking specifically about um, how we are the body of Christ, and that's the language that we're using, and, and so we are the resurrection of Jesus, and... Um, I run into this probably more than anything else, and another one that I've run into a lot in the last few years, um, because various like, progressive podcasts have picked it up and, and sort of kicked this idea and batted it around a bit, is the idea of sort of this like, mystical atomic resurrection, right? And the way this works is, they'll say something like, well, the atoms that I have, like matter can't be created or destroyed, and so the, the, you know, the, some of the atoms maybe in my hand or in my head or in my brain were once in a dinosaur, um, or they were in a bird, or they were at some point, and so they've been reused, and so that animal is resurrected, and I am here. And one day, when I'm gone, I'll be made into dust. And we use a lot of language from Scripture to talk about this, and then say, um, "And resurrection, basically, my atoms will be used one day in something else, and that is a form of resurrection." And I understand what you're doing, and in a sense, I'm like, I'm like with you, like in, in the admittance that like this is like a hard topic, okay. It's hard, it's hard to bat this idea around and talk about it. Um, uh, th- we sometimes assume that modern humanity is a lot smarter and less gullible than ancient humanity, despite how many people on your social media threads post satire as actual news on a weekly basis. We think we're less gullible than ancient people. We're not, though. Um, and therefore, it's, it, it, it may have been reasonable for ancient people to believe in this sort of thing like resurrection, but it remains unreasonable for modern people to hold this idea. This is what scholars call, and historians mainly call, chronological snobbery, that somehow we are more wise, we are smarter and better, um, and far, of course, course less gullible, um, and we think deeper than ancient people did, except for the fact that you could just simply point to all the things today that we struggle with that ancient people didn't struggle with. The massive amounts of depression and the the inability to wrap our, our minds around our identity and who we are, like the inability to think clearly about modern issues and instead be so partisan that we can't even think straight. Like, ancient peoples didn't, by and large, buy into a lot of the things that we buy into today. Um, I would I would push back against chronological snobbery uh, in a lot of ways. Um, we assume ancient peoples were relatively stupid and easily believed whatever, and that. Every generation, though, I want you to understand, every generation tends to think they are smarter than the generation that came before them, no matter what. And your kids will think, mine have already started, thinking they're smarter than you. Um, And so we believe this now, you know, we believe maybe some of these things now um, because we now know the laws of nature, whereas first century people didn't know the laws of nature, and we now know that Jesus simply couldn't have risen from the dead. But as you actually look through ancient history, as you become a, studen- a student of, of, um, of, of ancient Near East and, and thinking in ancient um, Greco-Roman time period and even Jewish thought in the first century and how they thought about the world around them, what you begin to see is that, is that I mean, historians and, and scholars have clearly shown that the ancient world was adamant that dead people didn't come back to life. They were pretty adamant about that. There's no debate there. People didn't come back From the dead. As far as the ancient world was concerned, the road to the underworld, as they would call it, was a one way road. It only went one direction. And nobody ever came back from it. Um, No humans ever believed that death could be escaped. Everyone knew it was a common thing that we would all share. And one day we would go the way of everyone else who has ever lived and every being that has ever lived and we ourselves will die. It was an accepted fact. Um, The ancient world had two basic ideas on death and the body. Um, uh, one of them could be wrapped up sort of in the, in the, in the writings of Homer and the... Oh, that's a little off-centered. Um, and the way that they thought about it. Um, basically, the idea that those who wanted a new body... The, the, the followers of Homer were people who wanted a new body but knew that they couldn't have one. So they would write a lot about what it would be like to get a new body. But they knew very well it could never happen. And then um, there's Socrates. Uh, I'm sorry, Plato. Um, not Socrates. Plato, who basically taught... Um, it's Plato and his followers basically... Their thought process was, we don't even want a new body. We don't desire resurrection because the tangible physical structures around us, uh, including our, our, our own bodies, are evil. Um, and, and ultimate goal is to disembody and fly away as a disembodied soul. So Plato, the Gnostics, and some evangelicals today view this, uh, view the world this way. That um, the whole goal is that it's all going to burn. And then it's this, they take the words of Paul in Romans way out of context to describe the actual tangible physical things, flesh, as evil. And, and, and they assume that, that he's speaking the same way they are and that the whole goal is to just fly away. And then we begin to use language like resurrection because scriptures talk a lot about resurrection of the saints. And we use the word resurrection and we twist it to mean something else. And so you have fundamentalists on one side Twisting resurrection to be a bodily, I, I mean, a, a, a separation from the body and a sort of a Gnostic platonic flyaway, and they call it resurrection. And then you have, you have the liberals on the other side who are explaining it away in the same thing. And both sides are doing the same thing. But none of them are doing what the apostles were doing. None of them. And so that's what I want to sort of talk about. Um, the only people who would say who would say in the ancient world that yes, resurrection is, is something that actually happens. It's a reality. The only people who would have said this is the Jewish people, but none of the Jewish people actually believed that anyone had risen from the dead or that one single person would rise from the dead in the middle of history. The Jewish people, um, some of them rejected, uh, like um, the, uh, the Sadducees rejected resurrection entirely. The ones who did believe in it believed it would be some future thing for all God's people at the exact same time. All right. This was the general idea of resurrection. Nobody believed it would happen in the middle of history um, at all uh, in none of these sort of definitions of resurrection, either the fundamentalist one or the or the liberal progressive or whatever in none of these um, um, are they capturing the ancient mindset of the apostles? Because there is not a single writing in the ancient world um, within 150 years of Jesus that defines resurrection as anything other than bodily and physical. When, When the disciples and the writers of Scripture said, Anastasis, resurrection, they were literally talking about Ezekiel, what Ezekiel is saying. Bones coming back together, tendons wrapping around them and mending and skin covering it all and a body coming back to life. This is how Ezekiel describes his vision of resurrection. This is how the apostles are actually describing Jesus. This is how the writers of the gospels are describing resurrection. There is not a single person in the scriptures who is thinking resurrection in either the way the fundamentalist who would explain it away or the progressive who would explain it away. None of the writers of scripture are explaining it this way. They're literally talking about the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of God's people later. Um, There's not a single instance of the word resurrection that was used in some dramatic way to describe some kind of heavenly bliss. It was never used in all ancient literature to describe someone becoming divine Um, and it wasn't really until the 2nd century, late 2nd century, like 150 years after the time of Jesus, that we actually find people using the word resurrection and twisting it to mean something else. But as far as the first couple of centuries, it didn't happen. When people talked about resurrection in the scriptures, this is what they're talking about. And so I don't think we have a place for redefining it. It is something that is presented. We don't create Christianity. We inherit Christianity. And we accept it or we don't, but we don't redefine it. This is what was given to us by the apostles, and I'm going to talk about why this was so important to them. Um, I want to point out to you how much resurrection didn't make sense in the eyes of the first people. Um, How many times did Jesus look at the disciples and say, hey, I'm going to die And I'm going to be resurrected. And they look at him and they say, I don't get it. And he says, they're going to kill me. And then three days later, God's going to raise me from the dead. And they're like, what do you think this metaphor means? What's this allegory? Explain to us everything, this wise wisdom, this great sage is laying before us. And he's being very literal and they don't understand it. They don't get it at all. Um, They don't believe him and it shows. And... At no point after the death of Jesus did any of the disciples look at each other and say, it's okay, he'll be back in three days. It's, okay, it's all good. Let's just hang out. No. Like, they went back to their old life. They went fishing because that was what they grew up doing, learning from their fathers. Like, they, they went back to their old life because Jesus was no longer the Messiah because he had died. Um, at no point did anyone, did any of the disciples say, I I think he's become king in heaven. That's what I think. I think Jesus is king, but it's like a heavenly spiritual thing. What makes you think that? Well, my heart has been warmed. I feel like we've all been forgiven. I feel that. Um, And I think you're going to feel it too. And I'm feeling like, yeah, I think something different has happened. At this point, they would have looked at him and said, well, go pray a prayer or sing a song. Like, don't make up stories about Jesus. Don't misuse theology in this way um and at no point was anyone speaking of resurrection um as as like as like it's okay it's like a spiritual thing they weren't doing this um what they believed was that the kingdom of god would come not in heaven it would come on earth as it is in heaven uh, this is what they had always believed, and this is how Jesus taught them to pray. It was physical, it was tangible, it was it was gritty, it was earth, it was here. That the center of God's attention is right here amongst humanity in the world that God has created us to live in and dwell in. The kind of kingdom they were looking for was very physical. And if the Messiah had been crucified and died, then what it proved was that he was not the Messiah. I mean, we can look at a conversation that two men were having on a road that Jesus sort of met them there after the resurrection, and one of them looks at Jesus and he says, they crucified him. But we had hopes that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, which means they crucified him so he's not the one that we've been waiting for. He is not the Messiah. This convinced them that death of Christ meant Christ was not the Messiah at all. He was not the Christ. He was just Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and so... All of this means, in their minds, that the cross meant that Jesus had failed. It meant that the kingdom hadn't come. That it not—it meant that he specifically, the kingdom hadn't come, not that it had. And when we talk about the cross as the end and the resurrection as a spiritual anomaly in our minds or in the atmosphere around us, we're saying that Jesus failed because Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God here. It's what he was doing. It's what he was establishing. And so why was it then, why was it then that not too long after this, these 12 disciples are walking around, well, 11, they're going to pick another, we'll go to Acts, don't worry. Um, Why are they walking around then three months later with 500 other people declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, the raised Messiah, the crucified Messiah? That That phrase right there didn't fit in their lexicon, like at all. The crucified Messiah, he survived crucifixion? No, he didn't, he died. Wait a minute, how can he be the Messiah? He died. God raised him from the dead. This doesn't fit their theology, their philosophy, their cosmology. It doesn't fit anything. So whatever it was that happened in that day, it was enough to start something new. There is no way historically to account um, for the early Christian belief that Jesus is the Messiah without resurrection. Because if a Messiah died, he had failed. There were two responses that you could have to a failed Messiah. You could give up and try to find a new one. N.T. Wright argues that James would have likely been the next candidate, um, the brother of Jesus, well-versed, leader in the early church. Um, And so the fact that one one of the evidences for the resurrection is the fact that James is not the Messiah. like It's it's a pretty good one. Anyways, for me it is. and the next thing you do, you would find a new Messiah, or you would just quit and say, that failed, this is a bad idea. Um, but three months later, they're literally going around speaking of, the, of Jesus as the Messiah, being arrested and tortured and killed regularly for this. Um, and this, believe it or not, is evidence that all that could have happened is a resurrection. I believe in an actual resurrection. I don't think you can explain the rise of Christianity without it. Um, that is not how linguistics work. That is not how religions start. It, they don't appear in three months and then have hundreds of thousands of followers and within five years have, have creeds and then Paul is quoting these creeds and these churches are being... It doesn't work this way. New theologies don't just pop up out of nowhere and then gain wide acceptance without some big anomalous event with lots and lots of people. And you, you cannot explain... Um, the early church, without this. Um, so within just a few years, the resurrection of both Jesus and his future, the future resurrection of all of God's people becomes the foundation of the Christian stance of allegiance to a different king than Rome. So check this out. Not only, not only did, did they experience a resurrected bodily Jesus, they believe that now because of this, he is king, and now they are running around committing treason against the empire in which they live and saying, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is, is Lord, which gets them rounded up and killed. A lot of times we like to, in the church, in the evangelical church, talk about persecution of the church as if they persecute you because you love God, because because you're good and they're evil, and they persecute you because they hate your goodness. That is not why Christians have ever been persecuted. They're persecuted by governments for not following those governments and saying, you're not my king, Jesus is. Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. It's treasonous. And so they were rounded up, And they were regularly killed by being fed to lions, torn apart by wild dogs and wolves and leopards, um, being lit on fire to to light Nero's parties. Um, This was what it meant in the early days to be a Christian, to say Caesar is not. And the reason that they could say Caesar is not Lord boldly and without fear of death is because they no longer feared death because Jesus was raised from the dead. They saw a man get killed by the Romans And then a few days later, he was teaching them again. And it shocked them. And their only response is to cry out, oh, death, where is your sting? If the tyrants, if he has now been disarmed. Because honestly, the tyrants' last weapon is death. That's how tyrants rise. They kill people. This is how they become tyrants. They scare people in various ways. But the last weapon that they have is to say, kill them kill them all, just put them to death. And this usually is enough to get somebody to fall in line because nobody wants to die. But if your king is somebody who is back from the dead and has told you, follow me, the same will happen for you. Then the fear of death is absolutely gone and stripped away. The point of the resurrection is that death has been absolutely defeated and Rome has been disarmed It is the overthrow of death and the overthrow of all those whose power depends upon death. It it renders their military might, their Roman crosses, absolutely impotent. And these things no longer scared the early Christians at all. And it sounds intense and and difficult to explain how much they believed in the resurrection of Jesus. But this is what it caused. Persecution from top to bottom. Um, And here's the thing. It was only those who believed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus that were rounded up and killed by the emperor. There is no tyrant in existence. There is no world leader who has ever had a sleepless night thinking about, I hope people aren't reading the Gnostic Gospels or Plato. I hope nobody's reading the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Thomas. Tyrants aren't worried about you reading the words of the Gnostics who are are redefining resurrection. World leaders are terrified of people who read the book of Matthew. Because those who read the book of Matthew and study it and intensely and and understand it, those are the people who begin to profess, you are not my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. My constitution and my bill of rights is now the Sermon on the Mount." My army is angels. The banner, the flag that I now wave, his banner over me is love and love is what I now wave. These things are things the Roman Empire could not battle against. We no longer take part in your system of of privileges and, and lowly and oppression, we now welcome all as equals to our table. And we no longer recognize man, woman, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, nationality, color. None of this matters to us anymore. We are brothers and sisters. We are a family. That terrifies Empires. You know why? They're worried that you will gather in secret and read the books of Matthew and read the writings of Jesus. You will realize there is no king but Jesus—a kingdom with no borders, no military, no term limits. That's a huge one. Um, that is ruled by a man who is not afraid of the worst threats of violence against him because he endured it and came out the other side. That is what inspired the early Christians. That is what did it. They are worried that you will begin to love people that they are telling you that you have to hate. That is what they're worried about. They are worried that you will begin to reject their displays of power and violent coercion, that you will begin to show love and grace and mercy, that it will rule over you somehow. And they can no longer control the things you do or the things you say or the way you respond to terrorizing things in the world. What tyrants are worried about is that someday a people will actually gather together and make Jesus their actual Lord and will begin to be ruled by love and grace and mercy. That is why they are constantly trying to disarm the Bible. How many times through empire history have people stood up and quoted Romans 13 and said said, the Bible tells you to submit to us? How many times has this happened? Has this one passage been isolated and pulled out and said please submit to us. Don't read the rest. Just read this and do what we say. Do not, whatever you do, read the book of Matthew for three years. (laughs) That does not help us. It does not help us. Okay? Now, If Jesus is resurrected, then world leaders are on borrowed time and they should be terrified. That's what it means if Jesus is Lord. His kingdom will have no end. He's not joking around. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. Um, Their power is subject to his own. He will judge how they treat his image bearers because he cares. Um, I believe that what happened on that day is that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's what I believe. I, I, I'm not going to try to explain it away either that way or this way. And it's ridiculous. You know why? I mean, the, the, even Paul admits, like, the, the, the cross is foolishness to those who, 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 who are perishing. But for those who believe it is it is life. Like, I believe the things that the apostles wrote about Jesus. I believe it. I believe that is what best explains the experience that they had and the choices that they make that led to the foundation of the church. Now, with that being said, I want to go to this little passage. What time is it? Oh, man. Okay, here we go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. This is interesting to me. Jesus meets these women in the garden. He's like, ta-da, I'm back. Go. Go. <laughs> Meet me, tell all, tell all tell all your brothers, meet them, meet me on the mountain over here, and we're gonna talk about this. Um, and so they, they meet him over there, and he shows up. You would think they would just be on cloud nine, freaking out, saying, It's real, you're here, what does this mean for all of us? But actually, what it says is that some doubted. Uh, the word doubted in the Greek, ooh, uh, everyone say distazo. All right, uh, it comes from two words the word stand, uh, stazo is the word stand, dis means away from, a little hip hop knowledge. Um, And distazo is where we get our word distance. Um, And um, it basically means that some were standing back and observing and they weren't really sure what to make of all of this. And that's okay. Um, Notice, Matthew doesn't name them. Matthew was there. Matthew could have easily just said, oh yeah, it was Thomas and Peter. Like he could have just outed them, (laughs) but he didn't. And we know from studying Matthew forever, that when Matthew doesn't name them, that it's a message to Matthew's church, when he doesn't tell you who did it, he wants you to ask, maybe, did you do it? Is this you? Put yourself in the story. What part do you play? Because he's just told the life of Jesus, death, burial, resurrection, and he's standing there before you, and some doubt it. And everyone in the room starts looking around, all of the members of Matthew's church looking around. Some doubt it. And they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of feeling that. Um, so there's really two types of doubters. One of them is the ones that Matthew is not really talking about, but I want to talk about it today. And we're going to go to the ones he's talking about. Um, just for a second here. Um, sort of what, I, what I'm going to call like the, the young and restless sort of doubters. The ones with asking all the theological and philosophical questions that need to be asked in modern Christianity today, Um, and questions about sort of doctrine and the nature of God and creation, about identity, sexuality, theology, politics, scriptures, theodicy, the trustworthiness of the Bible, Trinitarian theology, evolution, universalism, uh, eternal conscious torment, equality of women in the church, and all these questions are flying around and being asked. I think it's important. I think it's necessary Good for you for asking them. Uh, I do want to speak to you about your doubts, though. The reason this is happening um, is because you have questions that you feel are valid and need to be answered. I want to affirm these questions are valid, and they do deserve an answer. You are right. Um, Second, I want to let you know, for 2,000 years now, we've been asking these same questions and answering them. These questions are not new to you. They're not unique to you. I mean, they might be new to you, but they're not new to the world through you. And I don't mean that to like, to, to sort of push you down or anything. I, I, I wanna say that to sort of invite you in and understand these questions have been asked and debated for centuries. And I wanna welcome you into the debate. I wanna point out that this is not a reason for you to leave the faith. This is actually a reason for you to enter in closer, to come closer, to sit down and have these conversations with us. And that we may not come to the same answer. Totally fine. Have you read the book of Romans? They didn't agree on much. It's okay. Um, what matters is that we're crawling towards Jesus with everything we have together. These questions are valid. Um, they're not, though, they are not new. And second thing I want to tell you is that it's, I mean, okay, did you know, so quite, okay, how are we going to start this? Now, a couple weeks ago, I talked about evolution and creation, Okay. And people are like hearing things that they've never, I've never thought about but evolution, creation, all this stuff. Um, Augustine, in the fourth century, wrote how he doesn't take the book of Genesis 1 through 11, literally. Augustine. Long time ago. The reason you don't know this is because the church has failed you. The church has not rooted you in ancient Christendom. The church has not. We've spent so much time making a show, um, attractional services, um, and trying anything to get you in the door that we never bothered to root you in the ancient ways of Christ, in the ancient ways of following Christ, in the ancient ways of discernment communally, not alone. Your re- personal relationship with God, that you, your personal relationship with God, I don't want to I don't want to like go too hard on this but like that's a new invention. We have a communal relationship with God together. We are God's people, all of us. We must we must enter into these things together, not by yourself. That causes you to separate. From people, so it's not your fault that you were ill-equipped to deal with these questions. The fault lies in the failures of the previous generations of Christians to inform you of the breadth of theological wisdom and wrestling that your church has always engaged in. You were never equipped to deal with these things, and that is the failure of the modern evangelical church to root you in, in the writings of the traditions of the of the of the mothers and fathers of the ancient church. All of this should have been happening all along, pastors and elders. Our job, your job, is not to entertain it's not to gather it is to root people in christ and and what it means to follow the path of christ the same way that has been done for two thousand years and if you are not rooting your people in that they will struggle and answer the same questions and fight the same battles that have always been asked over and over and over that volumes have been written on and that have been preserved for you to read take it seriously Now, the second kind of doubter, and this is what we're gonna close up with today, the second kind of doubter is the one that Jesus is talking about. It is the one who stands at a distance and isn't sure whether or not this thing of following Jesus is actually a good idea. Because it sounds, honestly, I've read the Sermon on the Mount, it sounds like a terrible idea. Loving your enemies, turning the cheek, Sounds like a great way to lose all your property and get a black eye. Like, I it don't, it doesn't sound like a great way to establish the kingdom of God. It doesn't sound like a great way to just be a holy person, right? Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so the passage says Jesus met them there and they fell down and worshiped him. And it says, but some doubted. And then Jesus walks up to them and has some words for them. I think Jesus here is talking specifically to the doubters. It makes the perfect sense. It makes the most sense of anything. If you've been following Matthew, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I am surely, I am sure, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. These are doubters who struggle with the question of whether or not the path of Jesus is is the right path forward. Again, a valid question. Because following Jesus sounds really terrifying. Um, We worry that taking Jesus seriously will cost us wealth or comfort. It will cause us to love those who we don't really want to love. We're, We're worried about giving authority to someone else. It's very worrying. What if following Jesus looks very different than the dreams you actually have for your life? What if it does? What if... What if it means making yourself vulnerable to persecution by both empire and the religious leaders of our day? What if that's what it means? What if it means sitting at a table with enemies and deviants and pharisees and criminals? When Jesus says here, "All authority has been given to me." He's he's prodding them and saying, "I know you're doubting. All authority though has been given to me." And then he tells them, "I want you to make disciples not just not just of people like you anymore, not just the Jewish people, of all nations." Salvation being offered universally to everyone. Bring it to everyone. Invite everyone from everywhere in, not just people like you. This is what we are doing. And, and the whole world will come together under King Jesus. And the big problem with that is who's now going to be at the table with me? What if it means that Jesus is the king of not just Americans, but also of the Jews and the Iraqis and the Afghan people, of black people and white people and gay and straight and male and female and Mexican and Chinese and all of us are going to sit at a table together under King Jesus? Yes. Yes, you are. All authority has been given to Jesus. All of it. And so we stand back at a distance. I think this is the doubting that we see the most today. These aren't people wrestling with doctrine. This is people wrestling with comfort and wrestling with allegiances. The biggest problem in making disciples today is that everyone has already been discipled in the the ways of the empire. And you are unindoctrinating them. You're actually trying to convince them that there is an actual Lord and King now, not just later. And it's difficult. And Jesus' solution is baptize them, baptizo, immerse them. Immerse them in the ways of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Immerse them in it. Just surround them in the kingdom of Jesus. Now, throughout the book of Matthew, the question arises, what if God is making your enemy your family? And Matthew has written to you to call you out, to render unto God that which is God's. All that bears the image of God belongs to God. You belong to God. Everyone around you belongs to God. And he's calling you to render them to God. Bring them back. So what is the gospel of Matthew? What is it? I mean, the book is called The Gospel According to Matthew. What is the final message? It's not complicated. I tweeted it out yesterday. It's not complicated. It's very simple. And it goes like this. The gospel according to Matthew is there is a new kingdom and a new king. The crucified and risen Lord Jesus. All authority in in heaven and earth has been given to him and his kingdom will have no end. That is the gospel according to Matthew. And from that flows all of the things that people argue about with the gospel. From that flows salvation and equality and justice and mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration of all things. These are things that flow from the gospel, but it starts with making Jesus king again. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion. It's the way we end every service. Our communion servers go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, And we're going to end the book of Matthew by doing the Shema together, nice and loud, with feeling and with passion. If you've never done a Shema, it's amazing. Ancient Christian prayer. Jesus taught the people to pray. It's an editing of an ancient Jewish prayer. Um, And so we're going to do this. And it's getting hot in here. I don't know if the air is broken here or two or what. Um, so if you would stand with me and our communion service, whenever you guys are ready, go ahead and spread around the room. We're going to do the Shema. We're going to mean it. We're going to do it powerfully. And when we're done, you're going to take communion and you're dismissed. We're not going to come back and sing another song. We're just going to be done. If you need to spend time in prayer, you do that. If you need to hug some people, if you need to pray with some people, you go for it. So repeat after me. Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Okay, ready? Nice and loud together. Hear, O oh Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, be with us. Be our king, our one and only king. In your name. Amen. Take some time. Take communion.